Welcome to the Becoming More Significant podcast. And this is all about helping you to become more visible, more credible, and ultimately more profitable by becoming more significant. And you have a smorgasbord of offerings to tap into. So over 50 wonderful podcast conversations with incredibly inspiring guests, each of whom are being truly significant in the world. And they're sharing wisdom and insights that helps them to continually have an ongoing impact in the world by being ever more significant. Then I have 10 Wisdom and Insights episodes where I have captured the golden nuggets from those conversations. And in each Wisdom and Insights episode, I share from either five or six episodes, the key learnings, the insights, and the practical actions that we can all take right now to become more significant in the world. And then my third offering is some snapshots of the learning that I have been doing over the last few years. I am a learning junkie. I'm constantly keyed into audiobooks, to podcasts, to TED Talks, to online courses, to mentoring. And I'm learning so much all the time that I'm sharing with my clients. And so I want to do that through the podcast platform as well. So I will be putting together very short, probably 15, 20 minute sessions on key learnings and again, key actions that can help us all to become more focused, tap into more of our potential and make a real and lasting difference in the world. So lots to choose from. And thank you so many of you for supporting the podcast over the last couple of years. It's been great to have you on board. And long may you continue to tap into the wisdom and gems of the Becoming More Significant podcast. Wherever you are today, I hope you're shining brightly. Have a great day. I'm really excited about today's guest. I've, I've known her for some time and I will never forget when I heard her speaking at the Professional Speaking Association and her story just blew me away. So welcome, Liz Cashin. Thank you so much. I'm really delighted to be here. And Liz, I would like you for the benefit of our listeners just to introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about yourself. So I am um, passionate about mental well-being and I am passionate about it because of my own journey, which was actually my shameful journey for such a long time. And I think the reason why I love to share my story now is to give other people hope that if they are struggling along their own journey to mental well-being, that there is light at the end of the tunnel, there are things that they can do, there are things that I've put in place that really now have transformed my mental well-being. Wonderful. Now, Liz, I want you just to take us back to that uh, traumatic day when you were just 13 years old and it was school sports day. Could you just tell us what happened? Yeah, I, I went to school as 
most 13 year olds do when it's a school sports day. Um, it was a beautiful sunny day. I was actually excited because I was taking part in some events that day and I was in with a good chance to win a medal, which at that point meant a lot to me because my background story at home, I had a mentally and abusive, um, emotionally abusive stepdad at home. So I developed some a very low self-esteem and I got a lot of recognition through sports, playing sports. So I was excited about the day ahead. Um, fast forward to the end of that day and my friend, my classmate was in hospital fighting for her life and I believed it was all my fault. And that was quite a contrast, obviously, to that day. And unfortunately, I took part in the javelin event as one of the events. And when I'd thrown the javelin, it hit my friend in the head and then she ended up in hospital fighting for her life and unfortunately four days later she died in hospital wow and you were just 13 Liz hmm. well I mean how did you cope because as you've alluded to your home life wasn't particularly happy you had this mentally and emotionally abusive stepfather so how did you cope with that and how did they react to you? It was very difficult. This was back in the 80s. If you remember, if you go back to uh, and those of us who were at school in the 80s, you know, health and safety wasn't a priority. If you if you think back, you know, I think a lot of things It's amazing. More accidents didn't happen. I think we had an English teacher and a history teacher in charge of probably the most dangerous event on school sports day. We had PE teachers were on a different field altogether. So there was uh, lots of ways that the school um, was responsible for what, what happened. But I didn't take that on board myself for many, many years to come. But at the time, I thought the javelin had left my hand. It had hit my friend and she was dead. And that was it. End of story. I thought there's no way I was ever going to see it in any other way than that you know I the blame I felt was completely mine you know I felt shame guilt um I, I actually thought that there was something inherently wrong with me uh, because these things don't happen to other people you know so there must be therefore must be something really wrong with me there must in fact I thought I was inherently evil that's what I uncovered many years later that that's what I had uh, developed a way of believing about myself at the time that I was evil and that I deserved to be punished. And so I went on to punish myself and abuse myself in many different ways over decades to come. And this is what happens when we go through trauma and when we don't have any help to come to terms with it, because not only did it happen, but I got no professional support at all. And when you think back to today's standards, you know, there'd be a whole army of counsellors going into that school, not just for the person who'd thrown it, but for the teachers, for the classmates, for everybody. And there was nothing, you know. In fact, a GP said it didn't even need to go on my medical record at the time. It wasn't that serious. That's what that's what he said. Um, so I was left really with really struggling. And it was over 30 years later and just four years ago from today that I was diagnosed with post-traumatic stress disorder and I've been living with it undiagnosed all that time but so all I knew was that my internal mind was in absolute chaos I would be in a bit triggered in, into terror I'd have flashbacks I'd get really angry I had this rage inside um, I didn't sleep throughout most of my teenage years um, I didn't sleep really at all and then I'd have to get up and go to, to school um, 
and I felt disconnected. I felt like I was this sort of walking shell of myself. You know, it was alive, but not living. And actually, I didn't feel I had the right to be alive. You know, it was so complex, so complicated. Um, but I'd taken somebody's life. I didn't feel like I deserved to have one. It was, you know, it was very, very difficult, but amazingly resilient we are as people. Um, and what had happened was I sort of split off that traumatized part of me in my mind, which is what happens with PTSD. You get sort of stuck in the trauma in your mind. But I, in order to survive, sort of separated from it. So it was there, but in order to function day to day, it wasn't, you know, overwhelming me uh, as it would be if I was fully feeling it. So, um, but over time, I created so many different layers to stop myself from feeling that. And, you know, in my 20s, I actually found ecstasy. And that was a way for me to stop feeling all of these things. So I found different destructive ways over many years to try and stop myself from feeling, but also to abuse and punish myself in different ways. And how did your mother react? I mean, did you say you had no support, but how was she with you? Um, of course, mum didn't understand trauma. You know, I had a lot of anger towards my mum for a very long time, but she was in an abusive relationship. Right. Um, mm. uh, of course, that was our home environment. And my stepdad actually said that we couldn't even mention my friend's name at home because he that was how controlling he was. He didn't want the limelight off him. So my mum would wait because, uh, of course, my stepdad was an alcoholic. So he was in the pub uh, every night. But so she'd wait until he went out for a drink and then she would come to talk to me. But I might have tried to talk to her early in that night. And she said, wait until he goes out. And I get so angry. Like, I want to talk to you now, you know. Mm. So um, so it was very, very difficult. And I think she didn't know how to deal with it, how to cope with it. And she thought she was doing the right thing by telling me it was in the past and that I just needed to move on now. You know, she thought that that was helping me to, to, to get over it. That's, you know, cause people didn't understand that with trauma, it's it actually hardwires into our neurology. We can't mm. just get over it. It's, it's in every living moment for us. If we've, if we've been through a, a major trauma like that. So it was difficult for her. And I think um, she didn't have the awareness or the tools that, that so many of us do now to be able to deal with it and she must have been traumatized herself you know it's a very difficult uh situation of course yes and so then you got into a cycle of addiction didn't you you were drinking you were on drugs you were in also fairly um oppressive relationships weren't you do you want to just give us a couple of minutes on on, on where it took you yeah so i I did. Um, I left home at 17. So that was a positive thing. I found the inner strength and took back some control. I went to live in a council flat when I did my A-levels, which was um, looking back. I think, my God, the resilience. You know, I didn't feel strong at the time. But looking back, that's what happened. I passed my exams, went to uni, you know, under very difficult circumstances. But I think at uni, I started to unravel. I think I've been holding on for so long. that mm. here was a chance for me, you know, as away from all of my any any memories of, of the accident in my home town and area. So I was away and just really started to, to mentally unravel, stopped going to lectures. I, you know, I'd, um, uh, I, I'm a friend from home offered me ecstasy. And for the first time I felt this connection. So I'd felt very disconnected up to this point. So I wanted, I carried that on for 10 years, you know, even when I left uni and into work, I would go out and get absolutely wasted every weekend and then put on my suit in the week 
uh, and do my corporate job. And my family didn't know, people at work didn't know. So there's a lot of shame around that, you know, as mm-hmm. well as from the accident. There was just, I was just a walking ball of shame uh, in many different ways. And terrified people were going to find these things out about me. And terrified people were going to look closely into me that they'd see this evil person. So, mm-hmm. you know, tried to keep people away from me. Um, but what I did attract was these abusive men who just mirrored my stepdad, you know, and this is the thing, as somebody said to me once, it's you were trained to attract those men growing up and that stuck with me. So um, then I attracted them. And also because I thought I deserved to be abused and punished. So they, you know, the drug taking and the abusive relationships got progressively worse throughout my twenties. And to the point where uh, I had to get a police injunction out against one of my exes, um, because he would lock me in rooms, he would throw things at me. He was very mental. Oh, gosh, honestly, even thinking back to it now is quite painful. Mm-hmm. It was really controlling. Um, and I was just taking more and more and more drugs. And really, I'd, at the end, I'd just hit rock bottom. And, and then I had a car crash, <laughs> which, so I'm laughing, but actually, I feel like life came and gave me a wake up call. It was like, right, Liz. Are you going to carry on down this path of self-destruction? Because that is going to end this way. You are going to die. I knew it. The way I was going, I was going to die one way or another. And I think that was my unconscious plan because I didn't feel like I deserved to live. Or was I going to choose a different path and actually set me on the path to where I am today, which thankfully I did choose that direction. But it, it could have gone either way at that point. Mm. Yeah, you know, just looking in your book, you, you actually, um, you talk about you were relentless in your quest to discover answers, pushed and pushed yourself. You were not going to give up my, my stretch, no matter what the cost. Why couldn't I just be happy and leave the past behind as all um, well-meaning people said I should do? Yeah. I mean, that must have been so difficult. People saying, leave it, leave it, leave it. And here were you just so traumatized and needing to find a way to heal yeah exactly that's it and that was you know when I started my journey of recovery I learned all these amazing things um that have helped me you know each one gave me a a piece a missing piece of the puzzle for me along the way but and I was trying so hard I was doing all of these things and then people would say to me oh you just you're addicted to your pain and I think that is not helping me. That is not helpful. You know, I'm trying so hard to, to really free myself from this pain. That I'm, and people would say, you just need to move on. Like it was so something I could just let go. I mean, this was like, as I say, hardwired into me. You know, saying that to somebody whose nervous system feels like it's, they've got their hand in a live electrical socket and mm. saying, you just need to forget about that now. It's like, I can't forget about it. It's like it's it's in every part of me. You know, it's it's I can't focus. I can't think. I can't just get on with my life. You know, all of these ways, it's it's really negatively impacting me. So um, there were really unhelpful things, but said by well-meaning people, I think. <laughs> yeah, well, people, we're naturally we're wired to find a solution, aren't we? Yeah. People have got a problem. We want to solve it and move on. Basically, that's it. Done now. Let's move on. You know, yeah. And uh, yeah, I know that sometimes when I just want to talk things through with my husband, I'll say to him, I want to talk something through. I don't want a solution. Yeah, exactly. Just listen. <laughs> but at the time, because I didn't understand trauma 
I used it as another stick to beat myself. Oh, I should mm-hmm. be able to move on. They yeah. keep telling me I should be able to do this. And so why can't I? And even, you know, I retrained as a life coach. I'd learned all these amazing things. I started to teach what I knew. And yet I'd spiral back into this place of despair. And so I felt like a fraud and a lot more shame around that again. Yes. You know, I'd feel like I'd be doing all this stuff and people say, oh, that, thank you so much. And then I'd feel like, oh, but actually I'm really struggling still. <laughs> um, but, you know, it taught me as well, we can teach what we know without having to be perfect ourselves. You know, mm. there's still a level of um, uh, uh, knowledge that gets passed. You know, whatever stage I was at, I still had some valuable stuff that I could share with others. And we meet other people where they're at. So, you know, every stage I would meet other people would be attracted to work with me who were sort of in a similar stage themselves. And then mm. that's evolved over time. Mm. Um but so much more now is known, thankfully, about trauma. It's still in its early stages, but I don't know if you saw there's an amazing film, The Wisdom of Trauma by Dr. Gabor Mate, that's just come out. And mm. he's just incredible. He's the most compassionate uh, therapist. He's an addiction expert. And he's just saying, you know, we shouldn't be saying to um, addicts, you know, what's wrong with you? We should be saying what's happened to you? Mm. you know instead of judging people we're so quick to judge to judging people to judging people for their behavior but what on earth has happened to you that actually this is the way now you are you are acting you know it may be that they have some deeply held beliefs like I did that actually they don't deserve to live and so they're unconsciously you know trying to kill themselves in different ways there's all of these things and every time we learn that what is the actual truth then there's compassion there but while we're just judging people they should stop doing this they should it's their own fault you know you hear people saying they should just stop taking drugs it's like the drugs are not the problem the pain that that person is in you know that's the challenge and I think that's one of the things I'm most that's been beautiful about my journey is the compassion that I've developed Mm. and the insight into other people's struggles and not judging them Brilliant. Yes. And, and, you know, when we were talking earlier, we were talking about the fact that trauma gets embedded in mm-hmm. your cells, in your body, in your DNA. You know, you can't just wake up one day and go, I'm just going to forget about it. You, yeah. you need to go through healing mm-hmm. on all different levels, which you have done. And we're going to come on and talk about that. Yeah. And just say, just forget about it. It's just, it's just ludicrous. Yeah, that's what it is. It's like, yeah. When I eventually managed to get trauma treatment, she said, you've had a normal reaction to an abnormal event. Mm, mm. And oh, just the weight of judgment just dropped off. The, to put myself a normal into any sentence was not a thing before that point. And this was just a few years ago. But, um, you know, to know that the way I'd acted out, the way I took drugs, the way I'd uh, punished myself was n- a normal reaction to a major trauma. You know, it was... And that was not something for me to be ashamed about. It was actually a survival strategy. That's how I'd, without any help, that they, they were things that I found helped me to, to survive, not in a healthy, functioning way, but nonetheless, not dead. <laughs> you know, they were still, I was still alive in some way until I was able to learn more and, uh, you know, get the right help to do it in a more healthy way. Mindfulness has been a, a key part of that for me. Yes. Yeah. Brilliant. And, you know, just, you know, once again, looking at your book, uh, by the way, for the listeners, uh, Liz's book, This Is Me, is it's a wonderful telling of her journey from trauma to to where she is now making a real difference in the world. And 
you know, you were saying that you had these long held beliefs. I'm evil. I deserve to be punished. The world is unsafe. I am unsafe. I am unlovable. There's something wrong with me. I'm worthless. I'm powerless. I'm alone. I'm a victim. I'm not good enough. And, you know, that that must have been so deeply held within you because it started way before the trauma, you know, mm -hmm. with your stepdad making you feel totally worthless and that you having no open channel to express that feeling or having anybody to understand and then to go through that trauma and have no release. Mm -hmm. No wonder, Liz, Liz, it took so long. Yeah. And I, you know, my heart breaks in when you say it. I just think, oh, my gosh, it's you know, it was, it was so tough. It was so tough and it was so painful. Mm. Uh, but I was, I was unconscious uh, in awareness at that point. And so I just kept going, you know, it's when I look back, I think, how on earth did I get through all of that? Uh, and it was just literally one, one day at a time, I think mm -hmm. I, that was the only sort of option. And interestingly, because, and this is fascinating. So I was christened Catholic uh, but not brought up practicing Catholic, but uh, my mum's side of the family, are it, it's a Catholic family. And I had this unconsciously deeply held uh, fear of a punishing God. Yes. That if I uh, died, I was going to go straight to hell mm. and be punished for what I had done. And that, interestingly and ironically, kept me alive because the fear of that punishing God, if I ended my life and what might happen to me was greater than the pain that I was living in day to day. Yeah. yeah so I that kept me alive, which is a really interesting Isn't it, thing. Yeah. yeah. Fascinating. I'm not sure without that because the pain was so overwhelming at times. Oh. Um, but I would just think, well, the, you know, what's, what's the option? The option is going to be worse. So you just got to keep going. Yes. Yes. Anyway, let's move into your journey, your fascinating journey, because you took yourself off to India. Now, what gave you the strength and courage just to pack your bags, go off on your own, not really knowing where you were going or what to expect? It was quite extraordinary considering. Yeah, and it's it's interesting because I actually did it because I was terrified to do it. You know, it's part of the mm. thing. I was like determined. And that's the thing. I think we've all got this deep inner strength that we're not aware of. Um, and I certainly didn't feel I had it at the time, but looking back was definitely there to to guide us to do these things. But over the years, I had been abroad at different times. And every time I went abroad, I felt like I could be me. It was interesting. It was mm. like there's something about being in England where I felt I was sort of trapped in this trauma identity. But being abroad, I felt like it could be not necessarily a different person, just more me. Yes, um, but it didn't have to have to carry that trauma so much it was fascinating and so and every time I came back from a trip I'd feel really upset because it was like part of me was longing to stay abroad mm. uh, because I didn't want to come back and sort of put this trauma suit back on again and um, and so I over time I had this seed of thoughts uh, that I wanted to go traveling and it just wouldn't leave me alone and I got to, you know, it was like my, I was 30, I think. And I thought, oh, I'm way too old. It was hilarious. I'm way too old to go traveling. I'll be like the granny, you know, be all these uh, gap year people. And then me as the granny. <laughs> so funny looking back. Um, but I thought, nonetheless, I just wanted to break. I wanted to break the drug cycle. I wanted to break the clubbing cycle. I wanted to get away from everything. After the crash, I think, you know, there was a couple mm -hmm. of years and I'd started to sort of pull myself together. And I thought, I just need, I need some time away from it all. 
to mm. really just break these patterns, to take a breath, and then to think about whatever may come after that, which I had no idea. Mm. And I literally had no idea what was about to come. Um, so when I was on a beach in India, I started in India, as you say, uh, and a, a fellow traveler offered to give me Reiki and I had absolutely no idea what she was talking about. And she was a lovely Dutch girl that I'd met. And she said, um, you just have to lie down fully clothed. That's it. And it's really relaxing and it sounds a bit weird. So why don't you have the session and then I'll explain it later. And I'm so glad she did it that way because I had no idea then. I was just lying down thinking, well, I'm traveling, so I'll give it a go. Um, and she didn't even put her hands on me. Her hands were above me for the whole session. But I just felt like I started to feel this connection. Um, it just felt like bliss. It was like these waves of bliss is the best way I can describe. And of course, I'd been completely disconnected. The only bliss I'd felt up to this point was through taking the drug ecstasy. Mm. I hadn't felt it um, even before the accident. So this was a completely new experience. It just threw me into a whole different reality because I thought, what on earth is this? And then afterwards, she told me it was a form of energy healing and she was channeling universal energy. And I was like, this sounds absolutely crackers, you know, but I was traveling. And I thought, well, I can't explain it with my mind, but my experience has been so profound that I want to I want to learn more about it. I want to know how to recreate this feeling without taking drugs, because it was a much purer feeling and it connected me to to other people, to the world, to something greater than me. So there wasn't this punishing God. There was actually something that I was a part of that was based in love, that I could draw strength from, that I had a connection to. It, it was, it was life-changing, actually, and it led me on this really holistic path afterwards. Um, but I became a bit like a workshop, well, I did not a bit like, I became a workshop junkie because I was, like, trying to recreate that initial feeling which you know if you're trying to chase those moments they elude you even more mm. I think this one was so pure because I wasn't expecting it and I was open to it which was interesting but I learned I went I trained in Reiki then I um, did some uh, shamanic work I did all, all different energy healings then coaching neuro-linguistic programming hypnotherapy uh, mindfulness you know I was, I was on this mission like you said before to be happy it was like my mission now I knew it was possible mm. I was on a mission and I was just I used it as another way to just push and push and push and push and push uh, and I ended up in this mindfulness retreat I was going to go into three weeks of silent meditation on my own <laughs> which looking back again I was like oh, you know I've really thinking that I now looking back I was all that trauma was there mm. and i put myself through these things but the guy who was running the center said um you really need to be kinder to yourself and I started to argue I am kind to myself I've been spending all this money doing all this personal development stuff I'm here this was in Sri Lanka and then I realized oh my gosh this is like a, there's some anger there and I realized just how hard I've been pushing and so I made the commitment to just surrender it all in that moment and I realized just how much underneath in those three weeks I dropped through every emotional layer I think that I had it was it was amazing terrifying painful exhilarating it was all of these things at different mm. times and then I dropped into the bottom and I realized how much I hated myself and oh it's, it's painful to remember and realizing how much I hated myself it was like my heart sort of cracked open and I started to have self-compassion and I realized that all these things had happened to me 
but actually it was me that was perpetuating it. Mm. It was me that was carrying it on through the inner critic in my mind from the ways that I was punishing myself. All of that, I got it to feel it really viscerally how much that was self-created. And yeah, my heart just, as I say, it broke open at that point. Wow. Gosh, yeah, I'm right there with you. And I just wanted to, to read the, the Viktor Frankl quote that you've got in your book. And it says, between stimulus and response, there is a space. In that space is our power to choose our response. In our response lies our growth and our freedom. Mm. It just seems to encapsulate what you're saying. Brilliant quote there, Liz. Really, really brilliant quote. So you went on then to, to travel extensively and to experience quite a lot of different healing processes. Do you want to pick out a couple that kind of really impacted on you and just tell us what happened? <laughs> The first one that came to mind, and I'm so, I'm laughing because, you know, looking back, I was I felt like I was Harry Potter. I went to do this uh, shamanic course in the Thai jungle in, in Thailand. Wow. And I because after the Reiki, I just thought, you know, I'm going to I'm going to try all these. I felt like a, like I say, like I was Harry Potter. Um, so I did this eight day shamanic course and shamans are really about um you know, it's all about connection to the earth and, and med- plants as medicines and connecting to the underworld. And oh, it was amazing, all of these different things. But I'm <laughs> thinking if people at home could see me now, they would absolutely think that I have lost the plot. But I'd never felt happier. That was the ironic thing. I thought, you know what, if this is losing the plot, then bring it on. <laughs> because actually, I've never felt more connected, more alive, you know. But we had to, as one part of the process, we had to go into the Thai jungle to find a tree to, <laughs> let me, makes me laugh, to respectfully ask the tree for a, a branch so that we could make a magic wand. I mean, if that's not Harry Potter, I don't know what is. <laughs> and that, before we went off, I thought, how is this going to work? You know, I was laughing to myself thinking, I've no idea what I'm doing here. But as I walked, it was really interesting. It was very still. And then this tree to my right, a branch just started moving. And I stopped and I was like, okay, I'll take that as a sign. Um, and I, as you know, was asking the tree, can I take a branch? And then the branch moved again. <laughs> I thought, okay, that's a yes. So I took, I took the branch and um, took it back. And mine was like a staff. It sort of went up and it, it came out like that. Mm-hmm. And I went back and everyone had found something which really matched their personalities. There was someone who had a tiny little branch with leaves and she had a very sort of uh, gentle pixie-like energy and then there was a guy who brought back like a Gandalf uh, stat you know it was like all oh, it was a, it was an amazing experience um, but it really opened me not to be so stuck in my mind to just be mm-hmm. open to these new experiences uh, because who knows at the end of the day Sylvia whether these things are real or not you know that's the thing we can get so stuck in, in our indeed beliefs that it's like this and that's rubbish I mean I say I was laughing myself when I did it I'm laughing when I'm looking back and yet it was a powerful experience it opened me up to different perspectives and I felt alive and I felt happy so uh, one key phrase that I learned through all of this was if it makes you have a better day if it makes you have a better day and it doesn't hurt anyone else why wouldn't you believe it exactly exactly <laughs> so I've just taken that with me I, I totally agree. And, and you know, whether it, it's true or not, 
whether it works or not, if it makes you feel better, then yeah. that's absolutely fine. But a lot yeah. of this scepticism is because you cannot explain it scientifically. And if people can't explain it scientifically, then it must be fake. Yeah, or logically. Well, that's, yeah. that just sounds like rubbish. You're right, it does. It absolutely does. And yes, my experience was profound, you know, in both of those things. Mm. And that's what I've, and, and because they were pure, again, because I had no idea what was going to be on the shamanic course. Yeah. I just thought I'll sign up for it and see. And then, you know, it was it was like being at Hogwarts. <laughs> but um, yeah, so none of us know. So why not do what you choose that makes you have a better day and I always say to people try it if you get something from it if you get some insights or you feel good do it again if you don't then let it go and mm. you know it's about finding your own wisdom I think that's one of the key things finding your own wisdom everybody, isn't it? you know not everybody's going to have the same feelings the same reactions it's, it's finding your own pathway and, and not making path. not making other people wrong for theirs that's the yeah, thing exactly quite agree um, but, you know, you went through ups and downs and ups and downs. Well, we do all through our lives, but you eventually managed to almost get rid of the blocks. I know you'll never get rid of the memory and all the rest of it. But what was it that finally managed to shift some of those blocks that had been keeping you in those dark places? With Well, I, as you said, I met you through the Professional Speaking Association and um, took part in a competition and I was taking myself to the point of the accident. I call it the accident, uh, what happened to me when I was 13. And unknowingly, I was just re-traumatizing, re-traumatizing, re-traumatizing myself. And I came to the point where I thought, this can't be right. You know, I can't, in wanting to help other people through what I've learned, it can't be right that I'm hurting myself so much. Mm. And at the same time, I read this amazing book by Bessel van der Kolk <laughs> called The Body Keeps the Score. The Body Keeps the Score. And it's an amazing book, uh, really amazing, highly recommend it. The first chapter is about a soldier who has PTSD. And as I was reading through and the ways it had impacted him, I thought, oh my God, this is like, it could be written about me, you know, even to the point he said he felt like he was living life in a glass box and, he, you know, other people were on the other side. That's exactly how I described it mm. um, a couple of years earlier. And so I went to my GP and asked if I could have an assessment for PTSD. And he was shocked. He actually apologized on behalf of the medical profession. And actually, that was that meant a lot to me after all the failings of GPs over the years. You know, I've misdiagnosed with depression sometimes or, you know, uh, other doctors had sent me away. Uh, you know, uh, this doctor, I felt like he really saw me and acknowledged, and acknowledged me and apologized um, and sent me for the assessment, which I got and the diagnosis. And I had some trauma, trauma specific treatment. And that was the missing piece. So wow. all of these other things that I'd done, they'd all given me something. They'd yes. built my resilience. They'd built my capacity. I'd learned so much about myself, but the PTSD is a specific thing. It's a trauma thing. You mm. need specific help. So when I got that specific help, I had to relive the trauma, which, oh, was incredibly painful but I think everything else had helped me to develop the resilience to be able to do that um, and to still function which I did thankfully um, so yeah having that specific treatment and realizing that back on that school field I was just an innocent 13 year old mm. uh, who wanted recognition you know she just wanted to be seen she was very unhappy in her home life she just wanted to be seen she wanted some positive recognition she in no way wanted her friend to be hurt 
or to be killed. And in realizing that, I actually had tears in my eyes looking at my therapist and I said, I really didn't do anything deliberately wrong. And she said, you really didn't, you know, and it was this beautiful moment where I thought, my gosh, you know, I really, I just was doing what I was told to do. That's all I was doing. No part of me wanted this to happen. I wasn't evil. You know, actually I was an innocent child that day who had a right to be safe. And she, the therapist said to me, you also had a right to be safe. Of course, my friend did, of course. She said, you know, you also had a right to be safe at school that day. And I hadn't even really given myself that acknowledgement that the school had let me down as well as my friend. So many years later, I was angry at that point, but then I chose to forgive them because I didn't want to hold on to that blame towards them because that was another way to hurt myself. And I, I, I refused to do that to myself anymore. Yeah. Fantastic. Now, now, Liz, I know that you have used this incredible life experience, the years of, of recovery, etc., to do what you're doing now. And you are being truly significant in the world right now. I don't even need to ask you if you are, but <laughs> just explain how you are now being really significant in the world in the work that you do. Thank you. Yeah, I, I chose, I, it was a conscious intention to, I, you know, I can't change the past, but I can change how I view it and what I do with what I've learned. And so that's been my conscious choice is to share what I've learned with others. And I do that through my keynote speaking on, or speaker panels. I do it through helping organizations to build cultures based on mental well-being. I do some work with young people. I've written my uh, book, as you said, This Is Me. And all the proceeds about that go to the Young Minds uh, mental health charity. So I just want to make as big a positive difference as I can with everything that I've learned. And actually in that, I get meaning and purpose, mm. which also fulfills me. So it's a way for me to give back. And also it, it also supports my own mental well-being. Wonderful. And how does that make you feel, Liz? Oh, it's sort of like a full circle, really. Mm. It's like you know, none of us, none of us know what's going to happen. None of us can necessarily choose these things that happen to us. But we can, the choice we do have is what we now do from this point on. And I think, you know, that feels that like that full circle for me that I, I chose to, to learn and grow. Uh, and it's actually called post-traumatic growth as a term for it. Mm. Uh, post-traumatic growth. Um, chose to learn and grow through everything that I've been through and help others through that. Mm. you really are quite remarkable oh thank you thank you I feel quite um quite emotional actually and quite inspired well not quite hugely <laughs> inspired by your journey and by your resilience and and everything you've done and it's there's masses of it that we haven't been able to address today yes <laughs> all the listeners please read Liz's book because it's a fascinating journey from from that really traumatic life experience to now making such a positive impact on the lives of other people, young people and adults, and giving all the proceeds of this fantastic book to charity. So I'd really love you all to support this. Um, Liz, how can people find you? How can they tap into you? Well, I'm very lucky to have an unusual name. Um, so it's my website is Liz, L-I-S, cash in. Um, and all of the social media is all at Liz Cashin. I'm so lucky. <laughs> Everybody else has the same name. <laughs> so quite easy to find if you want to find me. 
And we'll put those links in the show notes along with the link to Liz, Liz's book. But I actually, um, once we've stopped this interview, I'd like to get the names of those two books that you mentioned because they mm. sound fantastic. So, And then I can pop them in the show notes as well for the listeners. Brilliant. So just before we close, Liz, is there one last thought or insight or quote that you'd like to leave with the audience? I think... I was just going to see what, what sort of came to me. But I think we all have this inner wisdom inside of us that we can tap into. And it's like our inner guidance system, even if we don't know that we've got it. Just having that awareness and uh, understanding that we do have it is going to be the, the stepping stones to being able to discover it. And your heart knows the way. Thank you so much for joining me today on the Becoming More Significant podcast. And I really hope that you've taken away some practical steps to take right now to help you unlock more of that hidden potential that we are all only scratching the surface of. If you would like to discuss how I might be able to support you in your journey into greater significance, please get in touch it's calendly.com forward slash Sylvia Baldock for a no obligation free initial coaching call to find out how together we can make sure that the coming weeks and months are your most significant ever. Take care.